Hi, it's Manny Jules speaking to you from Cold Creek on the Kamloops Indian Reserve. I'm the Chief Commissioner of the First Nations Tax Commission. Hi, I'm Greg Richard. I'm one of Manny Jules' many economists with the Fiscal Realities Economists. Can I ask a question about the Laurier Memorial to start? And what's intriguing is they, they talk about these different phases of, of you know, encounter with the, with the, well, for lack of a better word, the whites, we could just say the settlers. And, and it's, I don't know what your perspective is on that, but it strikes me that it really just reflects the economic activity that was happening at the time. But I, I curious to what you think about that. They talk about the French being the real whites. They really just mean this is the fur trade days, I presume. Is, is that be a, like they're fur traders, so they weren't really interested in settling. And hence, they were easier to get along with. Um, and then I think when I read this, I started looking and I just thought, wow, 18, when the Oregon Treaty was signed, they started to develop an interest in settling the land. And I suspect, is that around the time you guys start seeing a real change? Well, it, the way I look at it uh, is in phases. So the first phase is the uh, fur trade era, which is, in our case, uh, really lasted about a generation. So from about 1811 to about 1825 or so. And then, uh, uh, and that's when we called the French uh, the Shema'ui, uh, the real whites. And the, I think you're right that, uh, you know, a lot of it is... Uh, because they were just here for fur trade and they they were centered out of Fort William and then came over and the Hudson's Bay I think were were uh, based in Montreal and then uh, then the, the what happened after that was the uh, beginning of the gold rush and that's you know that was after the the Mexican American War which uh, determined the boundary between Mexico and the United States and and also uh, all of the territories, New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, California, all of those were, were, were uh, then declared part of, uh, of the United States. And then you've got the gold rush, uh, of course, in California in 1849. And that slowly began to move northward. And the big gold rush up here was, uh, you know, Billy Barker. And then that led to uh, the, the, uh, the, the people coming up from the United States, bringing their cattle uh, northward. And of course, when you move cattle, uh, the purpose of, of bringing cattle up was to settle, sell to the miners. And uh, when you move cattle, you, you move them about 10 miles a day and so that's when you started to, to have uh, the historic ranches like the Gang Ranch, Harper Ranch, Douglas Lake Ranch, O'Keefe Ranch. Uh, all of these major ranches were established uh, firstly as, as a, a place where the, the cattle would rest and then uh, they were slowly uh, developed into, into a ranch and, and uh, a place where the cowboys... Uh, who weren't really called cowboys uh, back then, but drovers. Uh, they that's they they would actually stay at a place, uh, rest their horses, rest their cattle, and then move continually northward. The about the northern uh, 
most boundary of of the cattle uh, driving was you know, I think in the in the Hazelton kind of area, and so it went quite a ways north uh, beyond uh, Barkerville, and that led to to uh, you know the gradual opening up of of the lands because people you know who were uh, you know, selling the the cattle ultimately determined that, geez, it would be good to have a ranch here. You know, lots of good grazing grazing areas, and so they started to establish the ranch. And one of the things I found really interesting is, uh, particularly Thaddeus uh, uh, Harper and his brother, uh, they established, they helped establish, uh, of course, uh, a few ranches. Uh, in, but Harper Ranch and the Gang Ranch. And a lot of those individuals were American, meaning that they came up from the United States and so they had sympathies uh, later on between the North and the South and they actually had protest rallies in Victoria because a lot of the, the early ranchers... To join the United States? No, not to... They, they were, you know, either for slavery or not. <laughs> You know, and, and oh, one, okay. you, you know, and one of one of the individuals that uh, were, was was part of that philosophy, of course, was uh, Joseph Tretch, and so he imported a lot of his uh, sympathies and his political views uh, from the United States. Uh, and so, when I when I think about the Laurier Memorial, uh, it's it's you know a hundred year history of. Uh, colonization up to that point. And so uh, we knew uh, about the coming of the, the, the white folk uh, through our trading network, and in particular uh, from the Okanagans, because that's where they came up. Uh, they came up through the Okanagan uh, to ultimately to Kamloops. And one of the other interesting things is that uh, until the until uh, I I guess up until about 1846, uh, when the Treaty of Oregon really you know delineated uh, between the boundary between Canada and the United States, the the customs uh, was here in Kamloops, you know for uh, for the the British colony and the and the United States. So you you know it it just really? shows yeah it just shows the amount of flexibility if you will on the on the international boundary and so coupled with that was the debate uh, about whether or not uh, the the british colony should be part of the united states and i think the you know, my own view is that the the influence on that were were from the americans coming up uh, uh, from the united states specifically to to trade uh, in 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 cattle and and one of the other things that the cattlemen didn't like was the fact that every time they would go through a different nation, they would have to pay a tax in terms of uh, cattle, you know. So they would slowly begin to, you know, have have less and less of a herd as, as they moved northward because First Nations were saying, well, if you're going to go through my territory, it's going to cost you 10 cows or whatever the case may be. And so I think that... When, when I read uh, the Laurier Memorial, when they specifically talked about the Shema'ui, uh, it was primarily the French and the Métis. Uh, as, as an example, uh, Yellowhead was an Iroquois, and uh, uh, Lolo St. Paul was uh, also an Iroquois. 
And I've often asked the, the Mohawks if they ever have any records about who those individuals would be. Uh, a lot of them didn't even realize that uh, the Aloha Highway was named after a, an Iroquois tr- uh, fur trader. And uh, the L- Lolo... I didn't either. Yeah, Lolo St. Paul, of course, you know, Mount Paul was named after him and Mount Lolo was named after him. And then you've got Paul Creek and Paul Lake. And so he was a very important intermediary uh, between the Hudson's Bay Company and, uh, and the, you know, the band here. And so uh, the, the influence, uh, not only was the, the, the French and the English, but also the, the, the Métis, who came over as, as part of the fur trading group. And so when you think about the first phase of, uh, you know, of the exploration, it was really the fur trade era, which I think lasted about a generation. And that's why you get it slowly moving from uh, the east uh, to the west uh, is because you would very soon uh, wipe out the, the beaver population. And, you know, and then, you know, by extension, all of the other furs that went along with it. And the fur trade really ended when the, the style of of the, the top hat went out of fashion as well, because that was a... And even to this day, you know, beaver is uh, is the, still the best uh, uh, fur felt uh, for making cowboy hats and uh, top hats. And so because of the binding... And, and then you consider the difference between the, you know, the rabbit fur, which is primarily from uh, the Australian uh, hat. Uh, so even, even that is, you know, impacted uh, by, by the, you know, the development of the cowboy hat. Uh, and so uh, getting back to us, uh, after that, uh, of course, was the, you know, the, Simon Fraser went down and the uh, latter part of the 1700s, and there are stories ab- about Shushwap stories about him, and I'm sure that they went uh, very quickly uh, around the, the territory uh, because he came in in the 1890 or 1790s or so, and uh, stopped at a village, uh, must have been like Canham Lake or one of those villages in 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 the, within our ter- Shushwap territory. And then uh, yeah, later on, you had the Overlanders, which is a famous story here in Kamloops, where people came uh, from around uh, the prairies through, uh, uh, ultimately through Jasper, and then came, came down the, the North Thompson on rafts and, uh, uh, you know, ended up settling here in Kamloops. Uh, but so that's a famous part of uh, the development. And even, you know, this notion of forts, you know, uh, Fort Kamloops, and, and none of these were really forts. So with us, uh, the first, uh, how I kind of re- reconstructed is the first uh, fur trading post was right around the uh, former residential school, because that would have been, you know, one of our uh, main uh, village sites. And... Uh, when we did an archaeological uh, inventory of the reserve, oh, it must have been uh, in in the mid seventies. We found uh, what I believe is the the fur trade uh, site uh, on the reserve, and that's right by uh, just south of the 
of the Kamloops graveyard, uh, and it's uh, it would have been it looked like a, a, a square building, well rectangular, about sixty five feet by about twenty feet or so, and the remnants are are up at uh, you know and and in even the the style of of log building is post and beam, uh, which is an upright post, and then the sills would fit in between it. And the reason that the the Hudson's Bay em- employed that kind of a structure is because it was easily uh, movable, so you would be able to move it from one one site to another. And the the reason the you know and the importance of of Camloops uh, is a fur trading era is because. Uh, because of the, it's still today uh, because of the crossroads. You've got the North and South Thompson Rivers joining. Uh, you had lots of trails, uh, our Indian trails, uh, you know, which were part of uh, what was called the Grease Trail Network, which uh, facilitated trade between the interior and the uh, Pacific coast, uh, for, particularly for Ooligan Grease. That's hence the name, the Grease Trail. And those uh, ultimately were called the Brigade Trails or the Hudson's Bay Trails uh, that really followed our uh, uh, our our trails. And and my brother John, before he passed, was uh, quite interested in that and actually went up and started marking some of the the trails that went from Kamloops over what what is now called the the Bonaparte Plateau, uh, uh, because there were a number of you know other fur trade uh, posts. Uh, within the territory. <clears throat> and those ran all the way across the Rockies, didn't they? Yeah, yeah no, our, our, our network uh, of the Grease Trails went all over. They were, you know, not only, not only in the rivers and, and lakes, but also uh, footpaths uh, that went all over British Columbia, north and south and east and west. And including over the Rocky Mountains, and and that's why, uh, uh, oh, uh, it, I, I want to say Tenasket, but uh, 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 from uh, Spalamsheen. What's the name of the lake? Me and my dad would always stop there. We stopped there a few times. Kinbasket. So uh, Kinbasket. Kinbasket was a. Uh, I think he was one of the greatest uh, Shuswap explorers. Uh, he was originally born at Chuchua and then uh, explored all the way up to Tejun Cache and then down the Rocky Mountain Trench, uh, right into uh, what's, you know, Spilamsheen and Shuswap. So he helped start uh, the Shuswap band uh, in, the, in, you know, in and around Columbia Lake. And that's that's the remnants of his his family. And then he, then the some of his family went over actually to Spalamsheen. And so uh, he went. You know, you can imagine in those days, you know, from uh, Barrier to Tejun, and then right down to uh, Columbia Lake, and then back. And and the reason they came back is because he helped uh, open up that uh, territory with uh, David Thompson. You know, David Thompson gets all of the uh, recognition credit. Uh, and credit for, you know, uh, the maps and everything that he did. But he wouldn't have been able to do what he did without uh, First Nations helping him and guiding him along the way. And his most important guide here in British Columbia, at least in our area, was uh, Kinbasket. 
basket. And all these fur traders were then using the previously the the, the Indian trails for the most yeah, that, part then. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you know, it, it is really interesting some of the first uh, fur trade items. You know, you can imagine uh, and I and I'm sure we had it just like uh, you know, in Lewis and Clark uh, you know the, the 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 famous story about the the steel arrowheads making it over the the Rocky Mountains uh, before Lewis and Clark made it, and and so when when we opened up our little museum here in Kamloops, one of the things that we sought out were uh, trade items by the Hudson's Bay uh, Company, and some of the early trade items were uh, kettles. Uh, you know, knives and uh, uh, hatchets and axes. Uh, everything that would make our life easier uh, were the first things that were traded. And of course, uh, guns and, and ammo as well. But, uh, you know, those were easily embraced uh, right off the bat, as well as, you know, uh, what would be called trinkets, uh, trade beads and the like. Tobacco was another. And it was all... They all arrived long before the settlers. Well, I I think that it became really prevalent with the fur trade, and so as the the, the fur trade moved across North America, uh, you get you get more and more of that. And uh, with us, you know, it's easy. You know, it's just like the iPhone now. You embrace that technology because it makes your life a lot easier. You can imagine. You know, and you know, I'm not not to say that and jade ads or jade axe would be really good, but uh, uh, I think a steel axe would be make your job a lot easier. You know, to do lots of different tasks, from cutting wood to making canoes, you know, and to building ultimately, you know, your your, your pit houses and and the like. And then, you know, with cooking utensils, it would make it a lot easier. And and you know, I. I I really love the story about Chief Louis and Johnny Chalhitsa going to visit the Pope in 1904. And one little uh, vignette is uh, when they're having breakfast and uh, Chief Louis sees all of the knives and forks laid out. And, uh, you know, that wasn't really prevalent with us and, until, you know, Chief probably till when Chief Louis and John and Chilhitsa came back and they realized, holy man, we can use all of these other utensils. What he says is, is man, I'm a big chief now. I'm, when I come back, I'm going to have to <laughs> tell my wife to use all of these uh, utensils, you know, you know, and I was the same way when I first started going to a lot of the fancy restaurants. Uh, God, you've got, you know, a couple of knives, some forks, you know, and, you know, even a specific I, I knife for a fish. Well, you start from the outside and you work your way in. Uh, that, I still don't know how to use those lobster things, but... Uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, so, so you know... I I think that so know, 1858 is a big is a big year because that's the year BC's founded, and the gold rush starts. And I never made that connection to the cattle and the gold rush, but that's you just made it for me, and I, the little light bulb went off. Yeah, it, and it, these it, guys it, then start fencing land, I presume. Well, not initially, you know, because they didn't own it. 
you know, and and so you so and and then after that, of course, you know, you start having, and and you know, a lot of it too hinges on when the barbed wire was invented. And uh, barbed wire didn't come into vogue until the the latter part of the eighteen hundreds, you know, and that that required a lot of technology to to be able to de- develop, and so a lot of people, you know, even today they collect. Uh, lots of different styles of, of barbed wire and uh, so barbed wire you know you had to have uh, basically the industrial revolution and the development of private property rights uh, in the west and so initially the the types of fences that were here were you know they they now call them the the Chalcotin fences they would be you know uh, post posts uh, and and uh, and the like, it wouldn't have been wire, and until that was invented. So when the when the uh, settlements happened, the the way I kind of think about it is that you would have, uh, in the when you look at you know 110 mile house, 100 mile house, uh, Laclahash, 108, all of those are you know part of the caribou uh, trade trail. And uh, it's at, you know, and the reason they go uh, 10 miles, uh, every 10 miles is because that's where you would stop. And so initially what would happen is you would have, uh, and if, you ever, if you've ever driven up to uh, Williams Lake and then up, uh, you know, up towards Barkerville, you'll see some of the old homesteads were right at the edge of the road. And so that would be, you know, a place where you would stop and get your hot meal and you know, uh, keep your horses, uh, you know, they, they would sell, sell you, you know, horse feed and feed for your cattle and uh, get you a hot meal and maybe a bath, you know, and that would happen, you know, 10 miles. And you can imagine some of these uh, guys like, you know, Thaddeus Harper and that, uh, you know, he started out, I think, in California, probably in the gold rush and then uh, into Oregon. And so a lot of the cattle drives started in, in uh, Oregon, moving northward uh, through the state of Washington. Uh, and then, you know, following, following the road right up here to Kamloops and then up to uh, uh, Barkerville. And uh, it's, 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 it's so in- incredible. And so, you know, you'd get the house, you'd get the, you'd get the corral, and then the guy would say, well, geez, maybe I better you know, put my mark on this, and he would start uh, fencing off or, you know, claiming a whole bunch of territory. And that, of course, you know, uh, put them in direct conflict with the First Nations. And that's, you know, uh, eight, you know, you, you had the uh, smallpox epidemic, uh, firstly, in the latter part of the 1700s. So there wasn't the kind of population that we formerly had, uh, uh, you know, in the early part of the 1700s. And then you had the major uh, epidemic in, in the, you know, the 1860s. Yeah, I remember you telling me the story about how many villages there used to be and how many there was after. I, I don't know if that, if you can remember that off the top of your head. Well, just like, you know, here in Kamloops, uh, we had the, the village, uh, the main village at the confluence of the North and South Thompson Rivers. And a lot of those were, have been buried, you know, as a result of uh, development. And uh, so you had major concentration uh, on, the, on the reserve. 
that was, and then we had another, you know, village site right where the city of Kamloops was. But our villages literally is side by side going right out uh, east from Kamloops to uh, towards Chase. And there was another village site at, at Campbell River. Uh, there must have been another village site right around uh, uh, Pritchard in that area because one of our, our territorial markers is Lion's Head Ranch uh, or Lion's Head Mountain. And that was a, a boundary line between the Kamloops people and the, and the Nisconleth people. And, and then right across the river, right around the airport, was uh, Chief Tronquil's community. And so just right in this area of Kamloops, there was a, a number of uh, villages, and they would be dominated by, by a family or a, several families. And uh, just north of us, there would have been one at Lewis Creek, uh, Chuchua. And uh, the, the famous story about the uh, uh, smallpox uh, epidemic is that the people up at Tejun, uh, which is... Uh, you know, right in the North Valley of the North Thompson River, uh, moved down uh, to uh, stay with the uh, Chuchua people or the Simch people, and so the the same thing happened with the with the settlement and settlement patterns here is that uh, the uh, Chief Tronquil's community basically moved to the the, the Kamloops Reserve, where it is now. Uh, because of settlement on the on the other side of the river, and and our population has always been here, you know, and uh, and the reason that the city of Kamloops de developed the way it, it it did is because of the uh, Canadian Pacific Railway, and the P Canadian Pacific Railway is on the the south side of the uh, Thompson River. If it was on the north side, there would have been a lot of conflict with us, uh, again. But it was easier on the south side. And so when you look at, you know, the number of communities in and around uh, uh, the Shushwap, Little Shushwap Lakes and Big Shushwap, of course, there would have been lots of smaller communities. But the way we kind of characterize it, it there must have been at least 30 Shushwap communities. And uh, today there are, are 17 uh, Shushwap Indian bands. And that story is repeated over and over right around the province. And uh, you know, it's clear what happened at at Haida Gwaii also. I think I mentioned that before, uh, where they had about, you know, 25 or 30 different villages, and now there's just Masset and Skidigat. Yeah. Yeah, there, and there's some discrepancies, like some of the accounts we read of the 1862 smallpox, smallpox epidemic suggested it wasn't, it was mostly up north and it's and inoculations had taken place on Vancouver Island and up the Fraser River and into the interior. And then I read Tate, uh, the book about Tate, and he had these descriptions of whole villages just disappeared in the interior. So I, well, I, I, I'm going to assume that Tate's is probably more accurate than a newspaper account from that time, but it's, is well, interesting. So yeah, he he visited lots of the lots of the the communities and was able to converse with a lot of the elders and and uh, the communities. Uh, I remember <clears throat> when the the Chalcotin won their their court case in two thousand sixteen, uh, and I went down to uh, listen to them uh, give the re report on their on their 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 victory. 
at the Supreme Court of Canada. It must have been September or so in 2016. And uh, I went up to Joe Alphonse and Roger Williams and uh, some of the others. And I, the first question I, I asked them, I said, did you claim Risky Creek? And we all started laughing. And the, the reason, of course, is that uh, Risky Creek was part of uh, uh, the Shushwap. Uh, it was a Shushwap uh, village, and they were decimated as a result of the uh, smallpox epidemic and moved uh, from Risky Creek to the east side of the Fraser River. And so even to this day, uh, the Chalcotans kind of claim right over to the, uh, right over to the, the Fraser River, uh, not recognizing, or at least until recently, uh, just starting to recognize that uh, as a result of the smallpox, there was, you know, lots of different movements of traditional territories that impacted us directly. And so uh, after we had a laugh, uh, they said, that, oh, we're, we're having a talk with the northern Shushwap about Risky Creek. And I said, well, you can't forget about us in the, in the south uh, because we have a vested interest up there as well. And the second question uh, I asked them, I said, have, have you ever uh, approached a bank to lend you money on, on your title? And they said, no, we haven't thought about that. I said, uh, well, which bank do you deal with? And they, uh, the, the, the first question, you know, the second was, which bank do you deal with, which was the Royal Bank? And then the, then the, the question following that is, have you ever asked them to lend you money based on your title? which of course I still interpret as a usufructory interest. So the, the, that's one of the things that I think is still, you know, all of these stories go right back to the uh, impact of the smallpox epidemic. It goes right back to, uh, uh, you know, the Mexican-American uh, uh, War and, uh, and the, the Treaty of Oregon establishing you know, the, the northern boundary between Canada and the United States. All of this happened within very quick uh, uh, succession. You know, in the United States, actually, in the Mexican-American War, uh, you know, went right into Mexico City. And, uh, you know, they, they uh, said uh, our, our territory, not our traditional territory, but our territory now will be at the Rio Grande. So everything south of that you can keep, everything north of that we get. And part of that, of course, uh, was the fight over uh, Texas. And, you know, I often thought about, because this is part of that story as well, uh, how we got the horse, because uh, the horse was in our traditional territories in the 1700s. And that goes right back to the, uh, uh, the uprising or the war in, in and around, uh, you know, with the, with the, uh, the Pueblo people uh, who were colonized by, by the uh, Spanish. And the Spanish were uh, in, incredibly uh, bad people as far as we were concerned uh, when they, you know, they had uh, a system uh, where they would be granted land and people that uh, were part of that land would have to pay tribute to them in, in many different forms. Some of it was in the form of labor. 
some of it was in the form of you know tasks uh, that were that you know made it necessary for them to work so in mexico city uh, you know the artisans uh, incomienta uh, i think it's called uh, but the the artisans in mexico city were taught uh, the european styles of of uh, building and that's why you you've got this incredible baroque uh, you know, Plaza, Plaza Mayor, I believe, in, in Mexico City. Uh, that was all built by indigenous people, and that was because they were indentured uh, to the Spanish. And so that system of indentitude uh, applied to, to uh, uh, the various tribes, and that led ultimately to an uprising uh, called the Pueblo Revolt in the latter part of the, uh, the 1700s or 1600s, I believe. And uh, there was a dispersal of, of horses at that time uh, because they, they literally killed everybody that they could. Uh, and uh, that led to, you know, the horses uh, and cattle, dis, you know, dispersing from that point. And they were, you know, in turn caught uh, by the Comanche and uh, then traded uh, all the way up here uh, to Kamloops. And so we had, you know, we've got uh, early stories about uh, being horsemen, and that facilitated the, the fur trade uh, as well as, uh, you know, the, you can imagine the horse's impact on our traditional uh, cultures. Oh, yeah. That was the rise of the Comanche and the Sioux, and, and, and I, I always wondered how the horse, when the horse arrived up here, did did Kim Basket did he travel by canoe horse or foot mostly or do you know? Well, I, I don't really know. I I'm sure that you know given you know the history he must have been a horseman. You know it, you know but some of the territory he went through would be pretty pretty rough. But I I think he was a, I think he rode a lot of it on horseback. You know as well as canoe. You know, uh, and and by foot. But uh, you know the the. That whole uh, story about the horse, I I just think is in, in, incredible, you know, and, and it demonstrates clearly the you know the trading network that we had, and the uh, and the value that the horse brought uh, to to us. Yeah, that's for sure. And so, like a lot, I didn't realize that so many of these first settlers were Americans. Was there like a you think the British were, I mean, I've read accounts that they were very nervous about the, the Americans were going to turn BC into another Texas, you know, where the, the settlers arrived first and then they, they uh, staged the war of independence. There was actually a movement to, for annexation by the U.S. in Victoria um, in the, I think it was in the 1860s, might have been 1850s. And I suspect that might have had a lot to do with the uh, them wanting to bring more settlers in. Well, a lot of the early, you know, particularly here in the interior, until the advent of the the, the Canadian Pacific Railway, which really changed, uh, uh, you know, the, the the population dynamic, as well as, uh, of course, the the you know the impact of of smallpox. Uh, but but the early settlers here were were uh, cattle ranchers and therefore uh, Americans and and drovers, and a lot of those drovers w did happen to be other uh, 
uh, tribal members as well. So they weren't, you know, they were mixed uh, with a lot of different uh, types of populations. But but the guy, the boss guy, if you will, were were Americans. And I remember uh, when we were involved in the Skidam Flats court case, I was surprised to, to learn that there were actual demonstrations uh, in in Victoria. One side supporting, uh, you know, the the American, the Union forces, and another side uh, supporting the the Confederates, and that's really a you know a, goes to the root of a, of a philosophical approach to dealing with the land question. Because if you're Confederate, you you really don't care, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you're 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 you know you're the colonizer, and and uh, the people who are being colonized have have no say. And that's that's really the, you know, I could see that in in uh, understanding Joseph Trutch a little bit more, you know, Joseph Trutch is probably just about an um, as important as James Douglas, so James Douglas uh, was the chief factor of the Hudson's Bay Company, and then he became uh, the the man with the the colony of British Columbia, uh, the the Queen's representative, and started. Uh, you know, having uh, that's how the you know the the treaties uh, they called them the Douglas Treaties on the southern tip of Vancouver Island came about, and uh, then you you had Joseph Tretch, who was an American, and uh, you know I, there's only one quote that you need to know about him, and he said, "Indians are no better than dogs and should be treated as such," and that uh, that's a, a philosophy that comes right from. You know uh, the lack of care, and and uh, you know in California uh, the atrocities uh, perpetrated on on indigenous populations there was really horrendous. Uh, Indians were were hunted for sport, literally, and uh, you know, and that was you know in the eighteen eighteen forties, you know, leading up to the the gold rush and afterwards. And uh, that's why even today, when you look at the, the flag of California, you've got an extinct grizzly bear there, uh, the California grizzly, which was hunted to extinction, you know, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the gold rush. Uh, there was also, also uh, I should say, uh, you know, the, the development of the Canyon Wars, which was a war in the Fraser Canyon uh, that was early in the, in the 1850s. Chief Ron Ignis is, uh, you know, is is probably uh, done quite a bit of research in that particular area. You know, but there's just so much uh, history uh, that led to the colonization uh, of of us here in in the interior of British Columbia and in British Columbia. But that wouldn't have happened without the smallpox uh, epidemic. And uh, in that, you know, that, and like we were saying earlier on, the, you know, pandemics have a way of fundamentally changing uh, society. And uh, the impacts linger for so, so much longer uh, in, in the societies. And, and that happens in ways that you don't even think about. And so, uh, you know, yeah, and, you know, and I, 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 that's obviously, you know, in the back of my mind when I'm thinking about, you know, what what will happen post uh, COVID nineteen is how are we going to be treated by by the governments? You know, this 
whole uh, you know uh, issue surrounding uh, Black Lives Matter. You know, uh, one of the things we have here in Canada and the United States, and indeed throughout the Americas, is that you've got systemic racism embedded in the in the constitutions. So it forbids us from owning land, our own lands. It forbids us uh, up until the, you know, 1949 here in British Columbia to have a vote provincially. And then it prevented us, this systemic racism, uh, from from having a vote in the federal elections. Uh, We weren't declared citizens until 1958 under uh, Diefenbaker and therefore weren't able to vote. And this is after... Uh, we declared uh, our support for uh, the British. You know, we, we appealed to, after the French, uh, we appealed to the British uh, because of uh, King George, you know, and his, his declarations that, that uh, they should do right by us. But it was uh, the British. So when you go back and you think about, uh, you know, the French uh, and British and how they approached uh, colonization, of course it is a little bit different. And one of the things I, I found really interesting in one of the books I read about the French and Indian Wars was the trade items uh, that were that were prized. Uh, the higher end uh, trade items were were uh, you know uh, prized by by indigenous people from the French, but the the, the rifles and uh, some of the others uh, were were better manufactured by the British. Uh, which was an interesting little tidbit. And then, you know... There was a good book called Empire of Guns that I've been meaning to read. Now you've got me thinking I'd better read it. It is about the role of gun manufacturing in in the evolution of these societies. And I'd never heard that the British made better guns. I just know they controlled the sea lanes. Yeah. And they had a different philosophy. Well, yeah, you know, it's... The philosophy of the British is the, uh, you know, the sun never set on the British Empire, you know, and and the British, you know, what what really happened with the British, <clears throat> and one of the reasons we speak English uh, here in in North America, with the exception of, uh, you know, uh, little bits of uh, Louisiana and uh, Quebec, is because of the tobacco trade, and uh, tobacco, uh, you know, was because of Virginia. Named after the Virgin Queen, uh, the first Queen Elizabeth, and that was Raleigh. You know, uh, they invented a different method of of uh, manufacturing tobacco, and that gave rise to really the, you know, the entrenchment of the the British settlements. Uh, they opened up uh, trade uh, internationally as a result of tobacco. It's really interesting that tobacco. Uh, when it was first uh, started to be manufactured, and then uh, within easily within 200 years, you couldn't go any place in the world without having, uh, you know, tobacco. Uh, and even with us, uh, we have wild tobacco here in in Shuswap territory, but uh, the twisted uh, tobacco was was really prized by us because we used that in our pipes, and that became a staple of of the the fur trade as well uh, that was uh, one of the items that was traded and so uh, because of the tobacco trade uh, 
it allowed the you know the British to to have uh, paramountcy and therefore the the shipping lanes and that was you know uh, uh, after the you know everybody wanted of course you know another uh, you know Mexico City with uh, another Cortez or you know uh, another Incan empire and that's why you had these this whole myth uh, develop about you know uh, uh, the city of gold uh, this continuing pursuit of gold all throughout the Americas and so you had a lot of the early colonization uh, happen because of uh, people seeking their their fortune and uh, that happened in you know after Cortez uh, in 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 the, his conquest or uh, of of the Aztec and the Aztec are really interesting people because they're Ute, you know the the same. Uh, uh, oh yeah, yeah. They 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 speak the same, uh, you know, fundamentally Ute language uh, from uh, Utah, and uh, they traveled southward and they were the last uh, group and that's why they. They settled in in the uh, in the swamp because that was the only land available to them, and they and their story survives today with the uh, eagle landing on, on the uh, prickly pear cactus with a, with a rattlesnake in its mouth. Uh, that's that was one of the early signs that they were, you know, in their in now it was going to be their territory, and so they established uh, uh, homesteads on on. Uh, uh, the the lake where Mexico City is today, and developed uh, their whole uh, conquest society there. Uh, uh, but they came down from from the north, and they you know they still, uh, well I don't know if they acknowledge it to this day. I'm sure that, I'm sure they do, but they back then they acknowledged uh, that they were from away and came down, and uh, you know they were they uh, they were. Uh, quite a force to be reckoned with uh, with Cortez and uh, but but anyway you know so the early you know Spanish conquistadors uh, they sought gold and uh, you could see gold fever in California and up at Barkerville and and even ultimately up in the Yukon you know uh, with a, one of the last gold rushes so you could see it moving further and further north I tell you, you probably take a lot of this stuff for granted, but it's really not taught in schools or anything. It's really quite interesting, too. Well, it isn't taught, and so you got to learn it all. I remember the first time I went to the Navajo Reservation, and, you know, i got to mention right now that the Navajo are facing one of the, the worst uh, impacts of COVID-19 in their communities. They've got the highest uh, uh, per capita uh, Infections in the in the United States more than any other uh, population, and uh, of course the reason for that is uh, you know multi you know there are multi reasons why that would happen. Uh, one of them is you know they they have virtually no uh, uh, tax jurisdiction. Uh, they do have some tribal tax when we were there. Uh, and, you know, one of the articles I was reading uh, lately was that they had about 13 different grocery stores on 16 uh, million acres of land. And, uh, you know, so lack of potable water, sewer systems, uh, lack of facilities where you can go. Uh, and so you get multifamilies living together. 
And uh, anyway, so they're so their business, but not tax jurisdiction at all. Well, they've got some tax jurisdiction, and it's primarily in the the resource area. I remember Strader and I, we were introduced into their their legislative assembly. We wanted to meet with uh, uh, the tribal chair at that time, but he had to leave to, on an emergency trip to Washington D.C., and so they introduced us. At uh, in their in their tribal legislative assembly in Window Rock, uh, which is their bureaucratic headquarters uh, for the Navajo tribe, a couple of the tribal administrators, tax administrators, were inviting me to go down to uh, talk with them about uh, you know looking at the the greater tax potential that they that they've got, and I'm hoping that. Uh, the tribes in the United States uh, begin to look at tax uh, in much the same way that uh, that I personally do, that it's a fundamental governmental power. And COVID-19 uh, has exposed the fact that uh, uh, because we don't have tax jurisdiction, uh, we're completely dependent on other levels of government. And so in the, in the case of the Navajo, uh, it's on, you know, four different uh, states, you know, you've got New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, and Arizona. And so they all have, you know, uh, 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 and they all take probably about uh, 50% of the of some of the income on some of their developments just because of compacting and some of the other issues surrounding yeah. uh, how uh, states can exert jurisdiction on tribal lands. And so the lack of hospitals... Uh, lack of ability to be able to look after themselves has led to you know the highest uh, concentration, as I mentioned, and on a per capita basis of of uh, you know our people in in the United States, and it's just uh, you know right now at this point uh, you know the, we've been pretty lucky uh, to have es escaped uh, uh, horrendous and a horrendous situation here in Canada, but. We're not out of the woodwork yet, and what I'm hoping is that uh, the governments will get serious, and the First Nations themselves, and the leadership in particular, uh, will get more serious about tax jurisdiction and and support our initiative to expand uh, the jurisdiction so that we won't be completely dependent on the federal and provincial governments. But anyway, with the Navajo. Um, the Dene, uh, of course, were, you know, they, they populated the Mackenzie River Delta. So right from the, the north all the way down to, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the four corners in the United States. And it isn't just the Navajo, it's also the, the Apache as well, or, or Dene, and, uh, and even remnants, uh, Satina is also Dene. And so you've got all of these populations uh, that moved southward, and it's one of the the you know the the stories that I think has to be you know really thought about in in terms of how DNA uh, will help us tell the the story of our colonization of of the Americas, and that's a really interesting one. Uh, it probably took them anywhere from eight hundred to a thousand years uh, to move from. Uh, the Mackenzie River down to the southwest. But when you put that in context of the Americas, even if we walked uh, about 10 miles a day, it would take us about 2,000 years to to uh, populate the Americas. And, th and that's probably, 
pretty accurate uh, description on how long it took us to occupy virtually every uh, niche uh, of the Americas, uh, allowing for uh, you know populations to 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 move in a certain area and then to ultimately grow. And of course, some some areas were a little bit better for population growth than others. And there were you know. Uh, in Mesoamerica that led to, you know, uh, corn and uh, tomatoes and lots of other things that we have today, beans. And, and in, in the Inca country, uh, the potato, you know, they're in Peru, they always talk about 4,500 different varieties of potato. So... I got have to agree with you about the Im impact of the pandemic because it's just a fateful period. 1862 we did some calculations and we think the population the ratio of, of indigenous to settler went from 10 to 1 to 2 to 1 between 1862 and 1871 when when bc joined confederation and that was all the, the years of the trutch you know some of his worst excesses etc and i suspect that wouldn't have been nearly the same if that hadn't happened but that's my observation well, I think it's part of the the narrative that uh, we've got to understand uh, that's still within our communities today. We we have to, you know, really think about, uh, you know, what's happening right now with COVID nineteen, uh, that we've lived mm -hmm. through it uh, many many times. Actually, uh, it wasn't just smallpox; it was measles, it was chickenpox, you know, it was uh, influenza. You know all of these uh, myriad of different uh, pathogens that came through our community, and what what we've demonstrated is that we we are truly resilient, and uh, you know it's it's incredible that we've we've continued to survive, and uh, I think that's a big part of our DNA is the is the will to survive, and also also the will yeah. to. To maintain, you know, our own world view as even in the in spite of colonization, and so when we revisit a lot of these, uh, you know, histories and read, you know, uncover it, uh, for me it inspires me to 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 know that we've gone through so many other uh, impacts as a result of uh, a variety of pathogens and, and we're not through it yet, not through COVID-19, but we will face others in the future. And the lessons that we have to learn is that we have to better, always better prepare ourselves for the next uh, pandemic. And that means having, uh, you know, understanding the past, but also never giving up the struggle for a greater jurisdiction so that as our ancestors always talked about so that we would be able to look after ourselves. So that would be my closing comments. And, uh, oh.